I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is a samurai suit of armor in Fort Smith Northwest Territories. Yes, as hard as it might be to believe, the Fort Smith Museum is home to a full suit of samurai armor. And when he saw this, author Richard Van Camp turned it into a wonderful story that is a blanket of butterflies in this graphic novel a dene boy and his grandmother help a japanese man reclaim his grandfather's lost samurai sword and armor and while the book is not entirely based on archival research there is a lot of historical context that goes into this story you not only have the reality that there is a samurai suit in fort smith northwest territories but you also have the close connection between the region and the Second World War, in particular Japan, as Dene mining was used as part of larger nuclear research through the Second World War, uh, something that leads us into questions about colonialism, environmental exploitation, northern relations. There was great damage that was done to the community as a result of that mining. Well, at the same time, the story delves into issues associated with colonialism and the knowledge transfer between generations. In our discussion, Richard gets into the question of whether or not younger generations of Indigenous peoples are being given the opportunities to learn traditional stories. And this is part of what motivates him in his writing, not only in A Blanket of Butterflies, but in all of his work. And in talking with Richard, you can sense his excitement and his passion for his work and for this larger purpose to his writing. And that really does come off the page in A Blanket of Butterflies. As I said, this is a new edition of the book. The original came out in black and white. This new edition is entirely in color and it adds a lot to the story. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated, really just jumps off the page. And as Richard says, with more and more Indigenous literature coming out, uh, it's wonderful to see the investments in this type of a work where it, it's expensive to print things fully in color. Uh, and it's terrific to see that A Blanket of Butterflies is now available in full color with all the contextual knowledge that goes into it. So I was very excited to read it. I was thrilled to have the chance to sit down and talk with Richard Van Camp. So without any further ado, let's get right into that conversation. All right, and Richard Van Camp joins me now. Richard, how are you today? Sean, I am great. Musty Cho for having me. Really appreciate you making the time on a Saturday as we record this uh, interesting choice of time, which might have been my idea. I can't remember. So I, I appreciate you taking some time out of your weekend to talk with me about the graphic novel, which uh, just arrived for you. It's a, a really beautiful piece that uh, you're showing me before we started to record here. So before we really get into it, what is that moment like for you? The, the books just came uh, they are spectacular. Like, can you describe that moment for someone who has never written a book or hasn't had that moment to see that tangible object in person in your hand? Well, Sean, first of all, I just want to say, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm really proud of A Blanket of Butterflies, the graphic novel. It just arrived last night. I was told that it was going to arrive September 6th, two days before my 51st birthday. 
So I thought this was, it's the same distributor that I use for the Lesser Blast and Gather and Moccasin Square Gardens. And I went, oh, wow, cool. We got a big box of books here. And I've also been blurbing a lot of books. And so when you blurb, when I blurb a book, I always ask for 10 copies. And there's so many beautiful new books that are coming out. So last night when I came home, uh, I was quite late. And I just said, oh, I better open this up and see what we're dealing with here. And I went, I literally went, oh, my God. It's, it's the new edition of A Blanket of Butterflies. Oh, and then, so I'm very famous for waiting. So, Sean, I have a question. If you were to receive a package and it just said your name and there was, it, it didn't even say who it was from, are you a waiter? Can you put it away for two months and go, yeah, 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 I'll get to it on a rainy day? Or it was like, it's, it's open. You've used your teeth on the box. Right. You're flossing with the packing string and you you got to open it now. What What are you? I'm probably in between the two. I, I can wait like a few hours. Like if I come home and there's something, I'll put it next to the door and then I'll forget about it. And then like later in the day, I'll see it and then I'll open it. Like I, I'm not I'm not a week later or a month later, but I'm also not an immediate opener either. Okay. Well, I'm very famous for waiting. I, I, I can wait years or months and it drives my entire family <laughs> bananas. And so last night, my wife Kiwi said, "So are we? Are we doing this? Are we opening it?" And I was like, "No, we're gonna wait. Birthday's coming up in a couple of weeks." And my our little yeah. one, Itzazi, who's eight, was like, "Oh, classic daddy!" But <laughs> because we're doing this today, I thought, "Wait a minute, I better, I better have a look at the new edition." Because you know, it's one thing for your publisher to send you something as a PDF and you approve the colors and the the spelling and everything. It's another thing to actually hold it in your hands. And so I was showing you. For everyone listening, I'm just holding literally the first copy that I could grab out of the box that my publisher just sent me, High Water Press. And it's The Spirit of Dead and Day, Volume 1, A Blanket of Butterflies. Now, A Blanket of Butterflies came out years ago, but it was only in black and white. And what happened, the gossip behind the series, The Spirit of Dead and Day, uh, when I wrote the book, I had no idea that it would become a trilogy. But here's what happened. The book came out. We were shortlisted. And... You know, we were nominated for an Eisner Award and then we were shortlisted, which is a huge honor for me because I've been collecting comic books for 43 years. 43 Uh, years, Sean, probably older than you. Anyways, what happened was when the book came out and after we were nominated and shortlisted, a couple years later, it just hit me. Wait a minute. Whatever happened to Benny, whatever happened to Torchy and Sven and Flinch and Shinobu and his family and the daughter and whatever happened to this beautiful little story. And then I ended up just writing this beautiful graphic novel, which was part two. And it's called, as I unfold you in petals. And then I just sent it to high water and I just said, Hey, completely unsolicited. I've just written something beautiful. I bawled my eyes out on the last page, which is usually a good sign. And I Mm -hmm. said, it's yours if you want it. And they wrote back and they said, not only do we love it, we're actually going to, well, we'll buy it and we'll, you know, we'll work with you and Scott and, and let's let's talk about getting it colored because uh, we're thinking of re-releasing book one in color, full color. But let's talk about a book three. And I was like, uh, yeah. So I had to go, you know, running downstairs and tell my wife and, and family, looks like we just sold two books. And that's how I love to work. I love to just do things on my own. And then when it's done and I feel it's ready to show and I send it to the publisher um, it's usually a yes. I feel like if I'm bawling my eyes out and, and it's blood, sweat and tears and there's nothing left, that's usually a good sign. So I'm really proud to be holding this. I'm really grateful to High Water Press for, for hiring 
Donovan Yakwick for the coloring. They put in a lot of extra touches on here. There's some French flaps, which are not cheap, by the way, which has some beautiful, breathtaking art. And I just, I'm really proud because I always felt when the Blanket of Butterflies came out in black and white that we were shortchanging ourselves because my vision for the comic books and graphic novels that I want to write is we want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Image and, and Dark Horse and IDW and Marvel and DC and have Indigenous literature that you can show anyone in the world, anytime, anywhere, and for them to go, oh my goodness, I had no idea Indigenous literature in Canada was so strikingly beautiful. So I feel like we have something that's international, it's galactic, and it really showcases Fort Smith grace. I'm really proud that this graphic novel series is set in my community of Fort Smith Northwest Territories. We were just there last week. In fact, after we're done, Sean, I'll send you a photo of the, the samurai armor. It's still in our museum. And that's what wow. inspired the whole trilogy. As you were talking about having a, a blanket of butterflies, the first version in black and white, feeling somewhat shortchanged, it strikes me as somebody who isn't an expert by any means in indigenous cultures that having it in color really does add something. Cause when I, when I think of a lot of uh, indigenous cultures, I do think of, you know, bright colors, very vibrant uh, expressions. So how much of what you do and putting things into a, a graphic format is a part of that, uh, of expressing indigenous cultures? And, and do you feel like having graphic novels is a more effective way of telling the stories you want to tell than perhaps a purely textual format. You've asked the million dollar question. And so as a huge comic book enthusiast and somebody who's been collecting for 43 years, we, we just have to back up how this whole story came to be. So growing up, Sean, I wanted to be a ninja. I wanted to be a break dancer. I was a, a, obviously a pop culture junkie. I love Star Wars, of course. I've been collecting Star Wars Micro Machines and the Micro Collection for 43 years. I actually am really excited about the new Star Wars Micro Universe uh, collection that's coming out of Ships and Toys by Jazzwares. I'm really excited about that. This is really going to welcome a whole new generation of collectors. So I'm a big pop culture enthusiast. Growing up in Fort Smith, I was a huge show Kazugi fan. You know, with the, uh, the ninja, anything ninja, I was all over it. Ask all my friends. And, um, you know, in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, we're population 2,500. We're officially quadrilingual. So that means that Chippewyan, Cree, French, and English are spoken at any given time. Uh, we, they say we're the end of Highway 5 in the Northwest Territories, but I really like what Tim Goche says. He says, we're the beginning mm. of the world. You can go anywhere from here. And I really love that shift. And so we are the Gateway to Wood Buffalo National Park. We're the pumpkin capital of the Northwest Territories. We're the Métis capital of of the Northwest Territories of Denende. So growing up, I was just blessed with rich culture, not only from the Tlicho Dene, my family, but also the Bush Cree and the Slavey and, you know, the um, the Chippewyan and the Dene Suklane and the Métis and Inuit, you name it, we had it. And so as I got older, uh, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, James Crozier, was a security guard at our museum. And it's called the Northern Lights Museum, just like you see in the graphic novel. And one day James came to our Dungeons and Dragons game, I believe, and said, there's a real suit of samurai armor at the museum. And I didn't believe him. I said, yeah, right. You wish there was a real. And he goes, no, you wish. You're the ninja. Come see this real suit of samurai armor. It's in a whole pile of boxes. And I didn't believe him. I just thought, no, you know, you're, you're the best dungeon master in the world. 
you make a mean cup of Earl Grey tea, you know how to microwave those hoagies from Kelly's gas station just perfect, but there's no way there's a real suit inside my armor. And then years later, I just happened to be home for a couple of days in Fort Smith, and I was speaking to the late Mr. Curry, who was one of the curators at the time, and I said, hey, Mr. Curry, remember when James Crozier was your security guard? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I said, uh, he said something really weird once. He said there was a real suit of samurai armor. And he goes, oh, yeah, it's, we still got it. It's in a whole pile of boxes. I said, no. And he goes, yeah, you want to see it? I said, yeah. And he said, okay, I'll set it up tomorrow. Come by tomorrow at 11. And so I showed up the next day and I thought, you know, there's, there's just going to be a couple of wannabe pieces, probably from a LARPing group, right? And I'll send you the photo I just took a couple of days ago in Fort Smith. It's still there. I, I They took out the main box for me just to show me. Um, the other pieces are in several other boxes. There was a real suit of samurai armor, and I actually lost my mind. I, I, I actually lost my mind. If my nipples could shoot off my body and come back as butterflies and slap me in the face, <laughs> go for it. Anyways, I actually just stood there in stunned silence, and I was like, a, James Crozier's a genius. B, he wasn't lying. And C, oh my God, life's amazing. So I started to do some research. Like how on earth does a suit of samurai armor end up in my community? And when I was Googling and, and snooping around, I realized there's a war memorial museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas, that has this, a, a wing of, of samurai, you know, quote unquote artifacts. And I went, oh my God. And I just imagined some hungover customs agent at Canada Post getting all these samurai pieces and this poor summer student going, oh, God, oh, God, never again. Oh, oh what was I thinking? Oh, and going, what What are these boxes? What? what are these boxes? What samurai? Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, let's just send them to Fort Smith NWT, not Fort Smith AS for Arkansas. And that's how we inherited them. Now, CBC did a formal investigation, and they there's three theories, and one of them is that you know a retired pilot had acquired these and then donated them into Fort Smith, because of course we have the uh, the capabilities to keep things in in you know light sensitive rooms with the moisture is perfect for preservation, you know that's nice that's that's it's probably true actually, but you know when you're a storyteller. You never let the facts get in the way of a good story. I just like my hungover Canada Post customs agent story even better. And so the two most important words we have as writers are what if. What if? And I thought, wait a minute. What if a man from Japan named Shinobu came to Fort Smith Northwest Territories and wanted to repatriate, you know, his ancestors' um, samurai armor? And, you know, in Fort Smith Northwest Territories, gambling is really big with Lotto 649 and card games. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What if there was a samurai sword that also accompanied the samurai armor? But what if the last museum director had a bit of a gambling problem and lost the katana to a very dangerous man they call Benny the Bank? And then if you if, if you don't read any of my books and it's your first time hearing me, um, you can read A Blanket of Butterflies, book one, or you can read my short story collections, The Moon of Letting Go, Godless but Loyal to Heaven, Night Moves, Angel Wing Splash Pattern, and Moccasin Square Gardens. I have a, a galaxy of Torchy, Sven, Benny the Bank uh, stories, and Flinch as well. So this was the perfect complement to this galaxy of, of stories that these criminals 
they've always been immersed in the darkness of, of our community. And I just thought, well, why not include them in the comic book? And, and that the rest is history. So I wrote it, but I also had an agenda and this speaks to your question, Sean, in terms of not being immersed in indigenous culture. So growing up in Fort Smith, Northwest territories in the seventies and eighties, I was a great Canadian. I'm a status Indian. I can do the drum solo for Platinum Blonde, Standing in the Darkest, greatest drum solo in the history world. Better, well, okay, you know what? Something in the other night, Phil Collins, I think it's tied. Anyways, when I graduated from high school, I really didn't have a clue about what I wanted to do. I didn't have a plan. I wasn't in anyone's life preservers. I guess all those guidance counselor meetings were just not effective at all because I just, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. And I wasn't going to pretend and go into debt and go to Nate or SAIT or U of A or UVIC and, and just go along with things. So I took a year off and I ended up going to um, Native Management Studies at our Arctic College in Yellowknife. And my life changed forever, Sean, when uh, the great Satu Dene elder, George Blondin, came to visit us. And I'd been reading George Blondin's articles in News North, the, the Press Independent, Up Here Magazine, The Yellowknifer. And he was a writer, he was a storyteller, he was an elder, he was royalty in my eyes. And he came in to visit our classroom, and he was only supposed to stay for about half an hour because he was promoting his book, Yamaraya. And it was a gorgeous book, but he told us his story. And he ended up staying for hours, by the way. It was the greatest afternoon of my life. And he ended up sharing stories about the Northwest Territories. And he talked, or, or Denende, we call the Northwest Territories, the Western Arctic Denende means land of the people. And he shared with us the story of, pro, of the, and the prophecy of Ea. So for those of you who don't know, Ea was a prophet who was born in Delaney, and he lived until 1940 or 1941. And George Blondin actually attended his funeral. So Ea, as a boy, whatever he said would come true. Anything that he saw in his visions would come true. And throughout Ea's life, he had one continual nightmare that he saw over and over and over. And so he told the people, he warned the leaders, he warned the people, he said, I have seen birds so powerful they never have to flap their wings. And I have seen white people and Dene people working together to take black eggs out of the earth and put them into the bellies of these birds. And in my vision, I saw these two birds fly. They never flap their wings and they follow the sun to where the sun goes at night when we sleep. And I have watched these birds drop two eggs on people who look just like us, the Dene people. And I have seen a fire so bright that it leaves only their shadows on what's left of their homes. We must never help the white people when they come north as they come to look for the black eggs in our earth. We must never, ever help them. And he, he had that vision many times. And he, he warned us. And, of course, we, we don't listen, right? We, we, it seems we never freaking learn as a species. And so what we hear is jobs, jobs, jobs. And so when the Manhattan Project was in full effect, of course, the uh, American government was looking for uranium. And that uranium was, was extracted using Dene men, so Slavian dog rib men. Slavian Klicho Dene men uh, to go into Port Radium and Ray Rock mines and extract that uranium. And so when you look at history, the uranium that was used to develop the detonation capabilities for Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
It came from Northwest Territories, came from Denandate, came from the Congo, came from the United States. And so what he saw was the detonation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, Aya passed in either 1940 or 1941. And the detonation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course, occurred. I'm sure you know when. You're a history buff, Sean. Do you know <laughs> the date it happened? Uh, so you have August 1945. So let's just say that Aya passed four years, let's just say, yeah. before his worst nightmare came true. So he shared that with us, and he shared our Dene laws. So number one being share what you have. I think number eight is be happy at all times. And, and I think number six is work hard during the day and sleep at night. And basically, it's a, it's a um, our laws are respect, kindness, and, and sharing. And also tell stories every day. So... When I wrote A Blanket of Butterflies, I had an agenda because I'm, I'm at the age now, I'm 51, and I can't remember when I wrote A Blanket of Butterflies, but I'm starting to worry that the new generation and future generations and seven generations from now aren't going to know what I know, and they're not going to hear what I've heard, and they're not going to be, be a part of the great tea sessions and storytelling sessions and feasts. And so I want to get those down especially now that I'm a father, but I'm also an uncle and I'm also a human being, right? And so I wanted to have this this great story with kinetic momentum and kick-ass fight scenes. I wanted to have ninjas. I wanted to do that. At the same time, I wanted to, to braid Aya's prophecy because it connects Shinobu, who comes to get the uh, samurai armor and the katana, but it also links our history, our Dene history with the Japanese. And so I also wanted to, there to be a really safe and quick space for any kid who's Dene growing up in the Northwest Territories or anyone who's married into Dene culture or any teachers that are wondering, you know, what, what are the rules? What are, what are the laws, the unspoken laws of where I'm from? They, they only need to check out a blanket of butterflies. And there's a scene where Shinobu wakes up and goes to the fridge and all of our Dene laws are there. And it, it, it's beautifully done, and I think it's very subtle. You don't have to read it, but for those of us who are Denny, uh, I think it's a good reminder that, that we need to, to have these more than just on posters on the back of a principal's wall, you know, more than just in, in a school hallway that, that this is accessible. And, we, and I want the world to, to see how proud I am to be from Fort Smith and to show our spirituality. And I always wonder, Sean, what can turn a wicked man's heart? How how do how can wicked men change? And what you learn is that Benny the Bank made a promise to his dying uh, granddaughter who was fighting cancer to become a better man. She made him promise. And she also made him another promise, which I don't want to give anything away because, you know, I love it when people burst into tears after I write something. I, I live for it. I think people who have read Path of the Warrior, my, my comic book with Steve Sanderson, um, it's about gang violence prevention. That's the tearjerker. That's usually the one where people just drop to their knees. They weren't expecting something so beautiful and sweet to, to hit them in the last panel. This is up there with that, where I just, I'm really, we're all rooting for Benny at the end. And I'm really proud. And I'm really excited about book two. That'll be out in April, 2023. We get to meet Runt coming to Benny's birthday with a trade. And I'll leave mm -hmm. it at that. Very excited for that. Yeah, I like uh, I like that. Now, you, you mentioned uh, looking back, uh, obviously, you know, this is a marginally a history show. Uh, so the, the book takes place during the Second World War. And how much of that was a choice that, that you made based off of what you were talking about, sort of the what if the vision? 
because when I was thinking about it, the experience of Japanese Canadians at that time uh, certainly uh, was not a positive one. The, the government was very uh, discriminatory against Japanese Canadians at the time. And as you made reference to uh, the colonizing project for, from the federal government, really for hundreds of years, but certainly during the that era as well was very strong. So how much of the choice of putting it during the Second World War was based off of shared experience between Dene community and Japanese Canadians? How much of it is an artistic choice? And just in terms of that setting for it, uh, how organic was it for you to put it during the 1940s? Well, you're, you're close uh, Sean, it's actually set right now. This a blanket of butterflies is happening right now. There's a flashback. There's a splash page where we show Aya's prophecy and we show the mining and and the detonation of of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The good news about the new color edition is we actually have Carolyn Nakagawa, who's the education program developer from the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. She actually writes a small essay talking about the shared history of the Dene and the Japanese. And she talks about the history of the Japanese internment camps, how uh, you know the Japanese who were interned were promised that their houses would not be touched, and yet so many of them were raided. It's a, it's a beautiful essay. Um, and I really appreciate that um, Carolyn says she's not surprised that in the effort of repatriation, it would be an Indigenous community that helps return a suit of samurai armor, these lost treasures, right? Um, I am also really grateful. Uh, Dr. S- Dr. R. Scott Sheffield um, also gives a history of the Manhattan Project and how it was indigenous men were enlisted um, and the government knew full well that these men would get sick. And in fact, if you can, if your listeners are, are, are real history buffs, you can go on YouTube and watch the documentary called The Village of Widows because it talks about just the horror that happened after the Manhattan Project um, when the American soldiers and Canadian soldiers and the federal government representatives left Delaney and and Fort Ray and all the sickness, the rare leukemias, the cancers. It's my personal belief that the federal government knew that these men would get sick. They were called coolies, Dene coolies, who went in there and, and helped extract that uranium and all that cake. And unfortunately, this great cancers came after. So we all paid, you know, dearly for not listening to Aya, and uh, I, that was something that I wanted to to showcase as well. And I and that was something that George was really adamant about. And you know, I was really lucky. Probably twenty some years after that visit, I got a call from New West Press, and they said George Blondin has spent twelve years handwriting five hundred pages on medicine power. And we're going to publish it. It's called Trail of the Spirit, Mysteries of Medicine Power Revealed. And George is asking if you would be his editor for the last book he's ever going to publish while he's still alive. And I was really proud to work with him and his son, Ted Blondin, and and, and the team of volunteers who hand-typed these 500 pages, like Lee Selleck and and other people from the Northwest Territories. And so it was interesting. You know, I I believe life is, is about circles, Sean. And for me to be there as this greenhorn Dene sitting in in a classroom at Arctic College in 1991, and then 20 plus years later to be Mr. Blondin's editor and to to work with him and and his family on getting the book exactly the way he wanted. It was a huge honor. 
I'm really proud that, um, and George, you know, with with all the books that George wrote and all the articles, the I'm sure dozens of articles that George wrote, I'm not sure he ever talked the way he did with us in what he printed in his books and articles, the way he did with what I wanted to share with, with the emotional side. I don't think George ever mentions in his writing that he was at Aya's funeral, that he knew Aya. And uh, I'm really proud to honor that legacy and Mr. Blondin. And I'm, I'm really grateful because he changed my life in an afternoon. I wasn't going to be no stinking land claims negotiator. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a, um, a storyteller, just like Mr. Blondin. And by the way, that no stinking, that's exactly how James Crozier talks, the ultimate dungeon master, the great one who told me about the suit of samurai armor. So, uh, but I'm, I'm curious then to, if we, if we take that further, because you mentioned the younger generation and things that you're worried about moving forward, whether people will have the opportunity to hear the stories, partake in the various uh, cultural rituals uh, to hear stories. So how important is it for the stories that are told to not only form the future, but also let people know about the past, that connection between history and future. And for you, how is being a storyteller and and telling these things through your graphic novels and through all your other uh, ways that you share your stories, where is that balance for you, if there is one, between sharing the past and informing the future? Well, I'm lucky because I feel like I'm part of the bridge culture. So my mom was stolen when she was five. My mom, Rosa Washi, she was stolen when she was five. She went to two different residential schools. She went to Brainerd Hall and Grandin College in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. My mother was one of 150,000 plus kids that were stolen. My mom is 71. She's still going strong in, in Yellowknife. I love my mom. I'll be seeing her on Wednesday. I'm flying up just to give her a big hug. And I'll gift her, obviously, the one of the first copies of um, A Blanket of Butterflies. So so growing up in Fort Smith, I my inheritance was being a, 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 I don't know if I'm even a second generation residential school survivor, but to grow up in the shadows of those residential schools and the mission schools and the 60s scoop from 150,000 plus parents right now and grandparents, I was born into a history of the machine of colonization and for my mother and and all the survivors and and for the children who never came home i feel like i have an obligation to really honor the history that was just about stolen from all of us just about murdered and so when i sit down to work on something there's times where in my fiction i can have fun and play and 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 tease and be self-deprecating but when you have an opportunity and, and especially when you work with a great publisher like Highwater Press, they really want they want story first, of course. But what's what's in the background? What do you want people to walk away with? What do you want, you know, a new generation of storytellers and anthropologists and artists and, and descendants of Den and Day? What do you want them to know about their inheritance? And I'm really grateful to have that because perhaps if I was with DC or Marvel or IDW, maybe they wouldn't have wanted that cultural context. They would say, no, we, we can we can leave. That's not important. We can Let's just focus on the martial arts and, and Shinobu story and Benny the Bank. That sells. Whereas with High Water, it's no, no. It's going to sell regardless. So why don't you do what you want to do the way you want to do it with the story? 
I'm really grateful. And I think that this is, of all the books that Scott Henderson has illustrated, I really do feel that this is some of his finest work. You know, we're so grateful to uh, Donovan Yakuik for coloring um, A Blanket of Butterflies. And I'm really grateful to High Water Press because this is a huge investment on their end. Um, it, it's not cheap to do full color, especially with French flaps and to do the presentation they did. I believe that they really want to showcase the Spirit of Denny Day series as one of their, their finest accomplishments. And, you know, I've had 26 books out in 26 years. And when I hold this up, I feel like this is one of my finest accomplishments. I'm really grateful. And Sean, I'm really happy that you had me on your podcast. Hey, and I, I'm thrilled that you're here. So the, the last one for me, I'll get you out of here on this. You mentioned what you want audiences or, or readers to take away from it. What do you want people to take away from this? Or, or even particularly, is there a divide for you as you're writing, as you're putting these things together between the individual's who live in Den and Day, and then those of us who do not, and uh, whatever perceptions or stereotypes might exist of the North. Uh, you know, how do you conceive of those two things? And when you're thinking about audiences and what they're going to take away from it, is there a difference between uh, those from Den and Day and those who are not? Well, good question. You know, when I when I first published in 1996 my novel, The Lesser Blessed. By the way, it's a movie you can watch it for free on CBC Gem. We're really proud of our movie. Um, when I first started, I wanted the Fort Smith nod. I wanted people from my community to go, yep, that's the way it is. That's Van Camp nailed it. My goodness, that guy knows his stuff. But 26 years later, 26 books out in just about every genre, I want the world to read my work. And I want the, I want the world to give the nod and go, hot diggity damn, that was a good story. I want to read more of Richard's work. And, Equally important, I want to read more Indigenous literature. We, I think every Indigenous writer out there right now wants the world to read us because we've come out of such incredible sorrow and pain. And you'll notice that a lot of our literature is now the celebration of, of coming out of that. And you'll notice that many Indigenous writers now are having fun with genre writing, whether it's horror, erotica, you name it, we're, we're writing it. And this is really a, an incredible time to be alive. I was just saying to my friend Smokey Sumac yesterday on the phone that in, in the 90s, when there would be nine Indigenous books coming out a year, if you were lucky, PhDs were born on those nine books. And there would be conferences around those books and those, those writers were, were, I mean, there's constellations named after them in many hearts, right? Now, 26 years later, there's too many books now coming out by Indigenous writers, and I'm not complaining. We're living in a time where it is an embarrassment of wealth. You can't keep up to the new writers, the artists, the new publishers that are coming out. It really is an exciting time. It's an overwhelming time because I'm greedy and I want to read everybody's work, but there simply isn't enough, enough time. So what I want is for people to read, whether it's my book or, you know, Sheree Demelines or Eden Robinson or Ruby Slipperjack, Jeanette Armstrong, The Lately Miracle, The Late Richard Wagamese, Kathleen Lafferty, uh, Francine Cunningham, whether, whether you're coming into Indigenous literature through A Blanket of Butterflies, book one in the Spirit of Dene Day series, let this be your welcome into the abundance that we have been enjoying for the last 50 years with our Indigenous literature in Canada, 
and certainly in the United States and certainly around the world with world indigenous literature. So let this be the gateway drug for you. Um, and may you be intoxicated by the beauty and grace of, of what we've accomplished here with this new series. And uh, I hope that you just keep going and enjoying with the rest of us what we already know. And that is, it's our time to tell our stories our own way. And I've been very fortunate to be with all of my publishers, with great editors who work me like a rented mule and bring out my very best. Because I certainly can't do what I do without my editors or my publishers or the artists that I work with. I'm the luckiest man that I know every single day to get up and, and see new artwork on the new comic books we're working on in graphic novels or to work with great editors who can lay the boots to me lovingly and, and really bring out my best. I'm, I'm so fortunate. We're all fortunate as the audience to, to see the final results. So again, the, the book that is being re-released in full color, A Blanket of Butterflies, part of the Spirit of Den and Day series. But as you say, Richard, a lot of work out there. So if people want to check out, obviously, A Blanket of Butterflies, which we encourage them, but some of your other work, uh, where can they keep up with all you got going on? Well, you can go on richardvancamp.org. I'm also on SoundCloud and I'm also on YouTube. So you can you know, hear me at my best with my interviews with elders on SoundCloud. And I do a couple of readings and we have permission from other professional readings of my work, but also on, on you, YouTube, you can see the, um, the, the beautiful drum dances and tea dances. Uh, John gone gave me permission to upload because I have a YouTube channel, a lot of tea dances and love song competitions that took place in the nineties. So you can actually see a younger George Blondin when he was still alive at these drum dances, you can see Elizabeth McKenzie, one of our matriarchs. You can actually see my late grandmother, Melanie Washi, um, speaking her language, cracking jokes at a talent show and singing the most beautiful Plicho Dene love song that I've ever heard. Um, so I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It's pretty easy to get in touch with me. But maybe what we could do for your fans, Sean, and I'll, I'll send you the links is I'll find The Village of Widows, the documentary on YouTube. We can post that so that people who want to follow up can really see the legacy of what happened to the Dene after the Manhattan Project. And I'll send you the picture that I took a couple days ago of the Suda Samurai armor, which is still at the Fort Smith Museum. Uh, amazing. So yeah, check out uh, Active History for the post associated with this for the photo. We'll try and put it in the art too. And then in the show notes, uh, wherever you're getting this, we'll put all those links down there to keep up with everything uh, Richard's got going on and uh, the documentary as well. Uh, so Richard, uh, I've taken you for longer than I told uh, our, <laughs> I told Lohi I would. Uh, so I appreciate you hanging with me uh, as long as you have here on That's a Saturday. Fine. This, uh, is, thank this you. is good visiting. You're a great host. Musty Cho. Thanks, man. Thank you, Richard. So my thanks to Richard Van Camp again. A Blanket of Butterflies, which is the spirit of Den and Day Volume 1, as he said in the interview, Volume 2, scheduled to come out in the spring of 2023. And check the show notes below for links to everything that uh, he has going on, uh, which uh, is certainly a lot. And if you like that discussion, if you like the book, I think you'll like what else he has. So let's get right into today's historical headline of the week, which comes from the Calgary Herald on March 14, 1998. Andrew Nikiforuk with his article, Echoes of the Atomic Age, Cancer Kills 14 Aboriginal Uranium Workers. As Richard was talking about during our discussion, the mining that took place in the North during the Second World War not only had its environmental impact, but it certainly had its human cost as well. And not a lot has been written about the health issues that resulted 
from this mining. There was a report that did look into this, but from a historiographical perspective, there still is not a lot on the trauma or the long-term health effects of mining in the North, particularly during the Second World War. And that's why articles like this one from the Calgary Herald in March 1998 were and are very illustrative of the long-term costs associated with mining, particularly when conditions were not as safe as they might have been later on or in a different circumstance. So for as much as we talk about things as happening in the past, mining and the Second World War, uh, the damage that is done, uh, particularly in human cost and environmental cost, exists long after the mines are shut down and the final resources are shipped out of the region. And Andrew Nikiforik's article, Echoes of the Atomic Age, Cancer Kills 14 Aboriginal Uranium Workers from 1998, is just another case. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please subscribe wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you like the show. You can follow along with everything we have going on at What's Oldest News on Twitter, What's Oldest News at gmail.com. And we'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old as News.